Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adoption Hacks. I'm your host, Candace Laycock. Today on the show, I am thrilled and honored to have Charday Dufresne to discuss racial injustices and issues in adoption. For white, adoptive, and hopeful parents, some of these topics will be heavy and difficult, but I encourage you to listen to Charday, lean into these issues, and sit with them for a while. These conversations are absolutely crucial for us to have, and I bring you this conversation humbly knowing that I have so much more to learn about these topics and revealing my biases and privileges and so on. But I hope that this is a launch pad for myself and Adoption Hacks to have more of these conversations and for you and your families as well. In this episode, we reference a couple times a video that Charday did with a couple members from the community. It is an incredible video and I encourage you to check it out. They dive into some really important issues and it is such a value to this community. So I'm linking that in the show notes for you to check out. All right, let's jump into our conversation. Here's Charday. All right, I'm so happy today to welcome to this to the show my new friend Charday. Welcome, Charday. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Yes, I'm so glad to be with you guys as well. This is such an important topic, and there's such a depth that we could go to with this conversation, but I just want to open it up and, and start the conversation about some of these issues that uh, maybe for a lot of our listeners have never thought about. And so I just want to, uh, to really start to dive into some of these really tough conversations and issues. Um, so I want to get into just a basis of what is some of the history of racial injustices in adoption? Yeah, I think it's it's so full and i think as we learn more about the history of black families and black people you're going to really start seeing how that um, has very much influenced the adoption community even in ways that don't seem as blatant or bold it could just even be something that's subtle um, but still very much an injustice and a racial injustice at that um there's a book called selling transracial adoption by um, elizabeth Brawley, and she kind of talks about the ideas behind like markets and families and the color line and just really tying in, I think, the early Black experience and the Black experience in America and how that is infiltrated into the adoption community um, at large. And so I, I would just even reference that book for hopeful adoptive parents to read as a resource. It's more, I think, a historical content. Um, but I also think, like I said, just reading history, um, when black people were enslaved, they were brought over. And if there was a family that had come over together, they were more often separated um, upon arriving in America. And even, or families that started to become units, they also would be separated too. So I think the fact that American history is built upon, I guess, dissecting black families yeah um really plays into how racism and adoption come together and have like intersectionality and mm -hmm. so that's something that i think reminds me and, and um kind of brings back perspective of where do we find these two different entities of life and how do they come together and how are they intertwined um and i also think too just listening to black educators um black authors and uh, black speakers who are working and giving material on anti-racist work yeah. is really key to understanding um, 
I, racism in America, and I think it doesn't necessarily have to be just adoption, but it's racism in America, and it's stuff that we should be really looking into and being um, being intentional with and asking ourselves, how do we play a role in this, you know, even outside our adoption community? Um, and I think, too, for adoptive parents, there's resources like um, like a Patreon membership where you pay like an educator to keep their work going or joining a workshop and um, one that's led by, I think a black uh, speaker, author or um, creative who has knowledge in just anti-racist work and the history of it. Um, Cause I think when you look at, if you look at racism you'll find adoption in there. So yeah. it's very intertwined and I think sometimes it's blatant and sometimes it's hidden, but it's important that we really look um, look in our past to see where it is in our present. So yeah, that's what I would say. Okay. Thank you. Those are really helpful resources. And yeah, it's just, it's good to have those resources that we can dig into and begin to discover. And maybe some things will be illuminated for us that right. and otherwise, if we weren't ready for that, let's talk about white saviorism and adoption. How can, first of all, how can, white adoptive parents recognize white saviorism language and behavior in themselves. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is you recognize it by reading about racism. Mm. That's how you recognize it. I think, um, which has been great. There is this sense of motion going towards in the white community, going towards um, the stories of black experiences and racism and also like I've been saying, um, really gleaning from black authors and researchers and educators and teachers. And there is so much language, I think, within racism conversations or anti-racist work that many white people are like, oh, I've never heard that term, like white fragility or white saviorism or, you know, uh, optical or performative ally, like all these terms. And so I think just really uh, diving into anti-racist work will then illuminate, like, as you said, some of the ways um, you function out of white saviorism. Yeah. And I think, too, the truth in general, we all hold biases. And I think white people hold the bias of white saviorism because it's so ingrained. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so historical and it's cross-cultural, cross-cultural among not even just America, but in the world with colonization and wars and all these different things and so I think it's really important for um the white community to really sit in the words and the stories of people who are there to educate and to inform and enlightened um the community yeah. and I also think too in the adoption community in particular uh I talk about this a lot is just this the importance of narratives and language mm -hmm. and I, for me I feel like that's where my storytelling breeds from is what what language are we are we speaking towards one another and what narratives are we living out of and believing and for me i'm finding that there are some really problematic and toxic narratives in the adoption community mm -hmm. and things that have just for me have taken up space in our triad community that i'm ready to really rid and rewrite mm -hmm. and one of those is white saviorism and it looks like phrases such as, um, and this is even my own experience of, well, aren't you just lucky that like you were saved by your mom? You know, aren't you just so glad that you didn't 
grow up in poverty, you know? Um, so I, I, it just seems like it's not even just our community. It's even the periphery or, or those that are mm-hmm. um, kind of, they're not maybe necessarily in your intimate community, but those that you pass through in the store will say, you know, something that is white saviorism. And so mm-hmm. it is something that I think overall uh, in our nation is a real issue. And then obviously that's going to kind of bleed into our community as well. Um, and then I also think too, white saviorism, especially in the social media realm, we're finding ourselves in an adoption community. I think um, social media is such a twofold where it is, I think, such a resource for our community um, to share ideas, to to amplify, you know, marginalized voices, to, you know, sit at the grander table as I think we're all kind of trying to have that type of language. Um, but then the other side of it is, as white adoptive parents in particular, I really think you need to do your research on the platforms that you listen to. Yeah. Um, and you really need to dig into the post and the, the vision and the mission of these platforms, um, the founders or the visionaries of these platforms. Um, and even today, it was brought up with uh, a group of friends on on account that's problematic because of language and narrative, and it is seeped in white saviorism. And mm-hmm. it's just, I think it's important for us to uphold our community and I think bring to light some of these areas that are shortcoming so that we are better prepared for uh, the next generation of adoptees, whether that's transracial or not, just, you know, the next generation of these adoptees, I think it requires us to uh, be bold in what we're finding to be problematic and to be humbled when it's us and our own and um, to really remind ourselves what's the common good and what is our common purpose. And I think for all of us, it's to create, you know, brave spaces not only for ourselves, but for the adoptees that are, that are rising within their own stories. Yeah. So that's kind of where I see white saviorism Mm -hmm. outside of the adoption community, but very much seeped into our community as well. Yeah. I had just had a great conversation with Ashley, Ashley Mitchell about the role of the adoptive parent to be the one in the triad who is, comes into the triad humble and wants to learn. Yeah. Because that has to be our role. We are the, the adoptive parent is the, the privileged yeah. part of the triad. They're the one who chose to be in the triad. Yes. So we have to be the ones who do the work and, and are coming in and ready to hear and listen. Right. Um, and I, something that I've been working on is that I would never say that my child is lucky because mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I know, and I would correct it in like, close family members and friends but if somebody would just say it to me you know by senior I would just let it go most of the time but now I'm starting to realize you know that's that's how change starts is when is that person may never have any other interaction with a family like mine and so for me to you know if this if the setting is appropriate then for me to be able to like have that conversation and or even just like a quick comment yes move away or maybe like make them think in a totally different way than they've ever thought before. Yeah. I need to, that's my, that's my work. That's my job. That's what I can do. It's so small, but that's something I can do. Right. Yeah. Like I said, language is key. And I, yeah. I think too, it's as kids or as adoptees, as young adoptees, we're listening and we're watching. Mm-hmm. And that looks like we're listening in and 
in how you respond to our greater community or wider community. Uh, we're watching if you invite um, people that either represent us in culture or in skin, or you don't to the table in your homes. I think sometimes there's so much that we're intaking. Mm -hmm. And I think even as a parent, let alone, I'm not a white adoptive parent, obviously, but just as a parent, we miss sometimes that like, they're just gleaning all the time and they're just intaking and absorbing. And so it's really important for us to, to be already ready and willing to push in the places that are important to us. And, and it could be with a stranger. It could be with, you know, uncle Bob across the, the table at Thanksgiving. And um, those little moments are important. And like you said, it could be something where, you know, they walk away with just a, a shift in perspective. And um, even if it was for that moment or it stays with them for a couple of weeks and, you know, they choose to do with that, however, but I think it's important to, sometimes I think it's kind of going off track, but sometimes I do believe Instagram in particular disservices us as people, because if we don't see that we're labeled influencer, than that we have no influence. And I really firmly believe each and every one of us carries influence, especially in the four walls of our home. And with that, it, for me anyways, it reminds me, I do hold influence and impact in not only my son's life, but like my intermediate circle. And so I need to continually be cultivating my community to, um, to really hold hard conversations and have grace, you know, right alongside that. And um, I think if I would, fall in line with what would an influencer look like online I wouldn't fit the bill because I don't have you know x amount of followers and people are not really asking to do collapse but just that idea of like we, we each hold influence and we should really be walking around with that that knowledge and that truth okay I have a follow-up question to this yes how do you I, I know there's a fine line between like truly wanting to help a child who is in need saviorism and how, how do you walk that line? Because, you know, adoptive parents come to adoption for all different reasons, but um, it's not always just infertility. Like there are ones who yeah. just have to do good. And, and how do you, how do you walk that line? I, I mean, I, I don't live, I mean, I don't have the reality of white saviorism. Um, so I can't necessarily speak on that, but the saviorism, I think it's just, you continually, you're just continually checking yourself. Mm -hmm. Um and I think too, there's a, I think there's such a huge difference of, you can check yourself, but you don't have to shame yourself in the process. I think if you're just more honest with yourself and um, with those in your close community about just what your saviorism journey looks like, um, I think that's really important. I, I find um, when I'm asked this question, because you're not the only one, it, it feels as though there's shame attached to it. And, and I think it's something just to really be mindful of as you ask yourself, where are my motives and, and where are my intentions? And that idea of like intention and impact, like yeah. as I have these conversations, as I post these things on my Instagram, um, where am I really in these moments? And yeah, it's, it's a little hard for me to speak on it because I'm not coming from a white adopted parent perspective, but I think, obviously we want to do good. And I think if you also come from like a faith-based perspective, you're going to want to see holistic community and healing and redemption and all these things. I think it becomes problematic when we think we're the end all. Yeah. Thank you for that.
So I hear this troubling phrase a lot and the, like surprisingly a lot, the adoption community of, oh, well, you know, black people don't adopt. And so can you speak to that and, and some of the truth behind that saying? Yeah, this is a great example of like a false narrative to me or a problematic narrative. Um, I think it's definitely rooted historically. I think it, it's language that's problematic. And um, I think when you don't know the historical context, like I said, of slavery and how like they literally separated families, I think that gives really big insight into current black families and how they go about their family dynamics. And um, so I think for me, the question I ask is, or I would respond with someone is like, well, what narratives have you heard about black families? And is, and, and where are the truths in that or the lies in that? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of go into the next phase of, I think it's really good, like I said, to look historically. So, or the language that you use towards fam black people, black families, um, you know, are you, are you around people or, you know, are the systems labeling the black community as lazy or, um, as impoverished or fatherlessness or um, generational welfare or, or just these different things that continue to undermine, I think, the magic and the beauty that Black people hold and, and brown people hold as well, or just people of color. Um, and so I think the historical part of that is you, you find this narrative within slavery. You just do. And there's a system in place that literally breaks apart Black families from the beginning. So that's something. And I also think to push back on that, there are black families that adopt and there's specific platforms on Instagram that solely speak on black families adopting mm -hmm. black children and white children. Um, and so it's there. And I think it's always important for us to do our research when we hear narratives that sweep a people group. Right. So um, in that regard, I think there's some really sweet nuggets in social media that actually highlight these stories and these experiences and because um, they're there. And I think lastly, black families do adopt. It's just usually not traditionally or not as, um, yeah, traditionally as I think white adoptive parents would view adoption. So there's many ways to adopt as we know. And I think a major way in the black community is actually doing kinship adoption or guardianship. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those reasons is mainly because black people want to take care of their own. Um, and I think they're going to do it in a way that keeps them safe. And yeah. if that looks like not involving the government, mm -hmm. they're going to go that way. And there's something that I said on that video that was kind of pertaining to why would we, why would we give or release a child or, you know, giving them the quality of life and using it in um, the traditional sense with the government assistance, when in fact this government has never had any care for the quality of our own lives. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why is black families adopt. And yes, there's some that do the traditional or go through the paperwork in the system and, and all those things, they're very much there. Um, but I would also uh, contend for the black community to say that it's already happening, it's just not traditional. and. Yeah. Um, it's very, I think a lot of it is um, cultural too, just in the sense of community and that like the community rallies around children 
And that can look like aunties, that can look like grandmas, that can look like stepdads, you know, all those things. And so it's happening. I just don't think it's traditional. Yeah. And I think that when you hear somebody say that, you have to really think about what that language is saying about the Black community. Are you you saying that they're not compassionate people? Are there, you know, it's just, you have to realize what what also is being said with that because that is not true at all and yeah in my in my circle there are so many black families who like you said have brought in nephews and nieces and so loving giving and um yeah and understandably they uh have chosen to do it their own way which i totally get (laughs) yeah yeah there's a mistrust for sure Okay, how does white privilege play a role in adoption? And like we talked about before, there is also adoptive privilege. So how do those <laughs> stack on top of each other and yeah. play out in this? Yes, I think privilege privilege in these questions are held in two different spaces. One is race-related and one is uh, financial. So um, I think just in our conversation thus far, it's obvious um, that white privilege exists in in the adoption community. And when you kind of tack it onto um, adoption parent privilege, I think like you said, it's you are the ones who are actually choosing to step into this triad space. Um, And I think that already elevates you. You have choice. And um, I also think not only do you have choice, you have the resources for that choice whether that's community, whether that's financial, whether that's um, the means to travel, whether that, you know, is, you know, uh, a safe neighborhood. Like all these things stack into privilege. And um, so I, I think it's there and I, I think it's, it would be really difficult for someone to walk in and deny that that's, that there isn't privilege involved in our community because there is. Um, and I feel like it's as clear as day. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there's a, there's a, um, experience that a black adoptive parent had, um, as she was in the courtroom finalizing her adoption of her white child. And this is kind of where I see privilege into play, whether that's white privilege or adoptive parent privilege, but mainly white privilege. And, um, the judge had asked her, what makes you the best person to raise this child? And I was reading the comments after, um, this mom had shared this experience that she had in this courtroom and many white adoptive moms were saying, I was never asked that question in the courtroom. I was never asked if I'm the right person to be raising a child. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that is a, just a clear example of privilege is it's even in the courtroom. Right. And yeah, it's, I, I also feel like it's that thing, even with racism or, or white privilege, it's the same in the adoption community where it can also be so subtle and, um, mm-hmm. And also be, like I said, be so blatant and obvious. And, but I do find that it's just kind of everywhere. And um, I also think too, adoptive privilege, sorry, adoptive parent privilege also looks like this phrase of safe spaces. Um, I think here's kind of the thing of like intent and impact. I think the intent there is yes, to create a space where we can have honest conversation and dialogue and talk about the hard topics. Um, But the impact of that for me, when I hear safe space is that this is actually comfortability yeah. and this is stagnation and this is 
um, if, if I hear someone, especially an adoptive parent, say I want a safe space, that to me is a red flag that that's then not a space for me, let alone it being safe. And that's why I think I have this push to actually create and nurture brave spaces. Um, because to be brave is to uphold our community. To be brave is to be honest about my bias or my, um, my motivations and saviorism, you know, brave spaces, I think for me really calls out the vulnerable and I, and I hope the response is healing and is freedom and is more transparency that breeds integrity and trust. And so when I, I think that's another privileged aspect is, um, when I hear adoptive parents or white adoptive parents in particular say, well, we just want to save space. It just, um, I find that to be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that if that's what your goal is, then you shouldn't enter into this adoptive community. Yes. And I think too, I, I feel like sometimes this sounds so dramatic, but I think these conversations are conversations that are really life and death for adoptees. Yeah. And it is that dramatic and it is that urgent. Right. And that's where I think I really want to push brave spaces, honestly, so that we don't lose anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I, sometimes I question, why aren't we all jumping in, you know, really wanting that for our own kids and, and for this next generation. So I think it's really important to watch your language and then really seek out what do you want from this community? And I really hope at the end of the day, it's brave spaces so that we yeah. can do, I think the real work that we really want. Absolutely. I think that as adoptive voices are elevated more, which is incredible, birth mother voices are being elevated even more. Adoptive parents are starting to feel that like come into the community and think, Ooh, yikes. I don't like how this feels, but yeah, we have to grow that empathy and realize that how has it been for adoptees up till now? How painful has it been to see some of the language we've so flippantly set when talking about yes. these and birth moms and and yeah we have to come in and to that brave space like you said that's really good um let's speaking of like integrity and everything let's kind of talk about some racial issues and injustices within adoption agencies have mm -hmm. you ever heard of or know about uh, anti-racist trainings for adoption agencies? Yeah, I think my initial response would be no. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> of any trainings. Um, and I really leaned into this but struggled with it, mainly because I didn't know and I couldn't really find any. Um, and then one came to mind, but before I get there, I think this is the shift that's happening currently in our community is a push for not just ethics, but ethics really dealing with racial reconciliation or racial relations within the community. Um, and so I, I really do believe that this overall has just been a shortcoming mm -hmm. um, to transracial or black adoptees and uh, or adoptees of color. And, and so I, th I do think it's high time to really bring in um, anti-racist educators and workshops to then train. And that's where I think sometimes we get so stuck in our bubble of adoption community that we really do limit some incredible rich resources outside of our community that can speak in. Mm -hmm. um, 
there are times where I just do feel that the adoption community isolates or marginalizes itself um, because I know we are so unique um, and it is so complicated, mm-hmm. but there is, I, I believe just a huge richness outside of our triad that um, can really speak into what's happening within. Um, the only one that I uh, really, that came to mind is um, Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison her mission and her purpose in racial reconciliation overall. She definitely focuses on how to do that within the church, but they also kind of have um, under the umbrella, be the bridge is the church side or like church racial reconciliation. And then there is like a transracial adoption side. All that to say, I think that's probably the only resource that I know of right now that um, gives quality um, anti-racist training in the adoption community. Mm-hmm. and specific to transracial adoptions. And I really think it is a resource for uh, white adoptive parents in particular. This is so needed. This I really do hope that this soon becomes something that agencies work yes. with and go through to be educated and to be able to reach out to the Black community and support them in the adoptions that they are already in. Yeah, I think it, it could probably feel daunting to some degree of just Mm -hmm. stepping into this, I think, needed space of anti-racist work within the adoption community. And I also think it really calls in paying brown and black people for their stories and their time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where maybe there hasn't been training in the past because there's a financial component to it. Mm -hmm. And so I really do hope that if that's really been a hindrance for agencies in particular, that they really actually see it as an investment and a needed investment and a pillar in their agency work and their mission. And, um, cause I, it is surprising that there actually isn't mm-hmm. more. So yeah. Much. I remember Ashley mentioning something and Tori mentioned something on that of just like requiring agencies or consultants or whoever to do like a basic history lesson yeah. on the black experience that alone should just mm-hmm. really give some insight into yeah. the family dynamic you'll have if you parent a black child. Right. And let's talk here about um, the, I don't even know what to call it, the horror that is happens in domestic adoption, which is that there is a financial difference between races in babies that are placed for adoption. Um, and I know you can, you can speak to that issue, but like trainings for the agencies would maybe bring some reform in that. Yeah, I would hope. Yeah, any training would bring reform for sure. And it is, it's, it's eye opening and it's, um, I think, gut wrenching to just know that to me, it just really does feel like this financial aspect of, you know, having um, a black child cost less, you know, it just, it's just problematic all around. And I think that's where then people start talking about commodifying in the adoption community. And those are really hard conversations to swallow and embrace. And and I understand that. Um, But I think that's our reality that it's something that we need to be brave about stepping into and being like, okay, if we're disgusted by this, let's reform this. So this isn't, this isn't a part of, um, the adoption journey or the adoption packet or however it, those languages are phrased. Um, it's, yeah, I, it's, it's, yeah. I feel like I don't have words cause I'm just so like, I know. I know. Say, other than being disgusted. Okay. 
Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think that we, uh, that's where we can use our adoptive parent privilege is to call agencies on that and ask for reform and make changes and not put our dollars <laughs> with yes. those agencies. That's how we can make a difference. And so to be, it's, I, I hate even discussing it, but to, to bring it to light, maybe people listening have never even, aren't even familiar right. with that, but, um, or don't realize it until they've already signed with the agency and it's too right. late. Um, but just to be aware that it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and be able to make a statement about it. Yeah, I really think there's an importance, especially because it's so much, like I said, is online, to really vet the educators. Like I said, really look into the platforms you're listening to, and that also looks like digging into the agencies you're using. Um, I don't think, I think sometimes there's this, and I'm speaking from no experience, but I would just think if you're embarking on adoption, there's um, just a sense of excitement. You know, there's, I bet there's so many emotions, but one of them could be excitement and eagerness, wanting to learn and wanting to just dive in. And, um, but I think what is concerning is then you, um, you're drinking from a fire hose and like you're overwhelming yourself. And, um, I think it's important that you as a white adoptive parent or a hopeful adoptive parent in general, just really really dig deep into um, what voices are you listening to and which agencies are you choosing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes too, it's okay as you start your journey, pausing and, and really sitting with some of the hard and heavy things of adoption instead of just like blowing through it. Yeah. Um, I think there is such wisdom when people say, you know, we were kind of working towards this and we just decided to take a pause and kind of halt this process for us as a family. And, because there's just a lot of issues we need to discuss before we bring another child into our home mm-hmm. and grow our family in this way. And it's important that we do that. And it's, I think too, there's just this tension of shame or guilt or expectation. And, and it's just like rid those things and sit in the honesty of yourself and, um, and with your partner, if that's something that you're doing um, together. And I think just being vulnerable with each other. Um, it's, I just find that to be of high importance and, I just don't know how frequently that's happening. Okay. Let's talk about the responsibility of adoptive parents to have anti-racist conversations and dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, like I've said, I think it's literally life and death. And we're seeing that across our national stage. We're seeing that in our adoption circles and our community. Um, And I find that it's imperative and it's really disservice if you were to, um, I think approach adoption, and if you're specifically looking for a transracial adoption dynamic, to neglect the fact that racism will not be a part of conversation or um, choose to be in the narrative of colorblindness, um, which is unhealthy, and um, in my opinion, um, because I think it really discounts uh, just the beauty and the richness of people of color and cultures around the world. and. Um, so I think I, um, I think there's four things that I would say for adoptive parents to kind of to take hold of and be used as a catalyst to be creative and intentional with these conversations with your kids, um, whether that be transracial adoptees, um, but even more so if there is um, a black or brown child in your home if you're a white adoptive parent. Um, and these four p- pillars to me, 
and mainly because it's been my experience, is um, I think it's really important that white adoptive parents, like I said, educate themselves um, on racism and uh, read the books, like I said, from black authors. And, and I almost feel like this movement with Black Lives Matter is actually gonna aid white adoptive parents in this time because I, I do feel like it is um, at the forefront on the tongues of conversations in white communities right now. Yeah. And so I would use that to your leverage to, you know, really seek out the black and brown creatives and, um, you know, maybe on Instagram or some other platforms. And um, it's, to me, it's like, it's working in your favor to have so much at the forefront of our minds. And um, so yeah. to not, you know, let go of that. So education, I think is crucial. Um, for my family in particular, it, therapy was really helpful. Um, whether as a family unit and individually, um, and to have an adoption or trauma informed therapist mm-hmm. is really important as well. Or if that's not an option, cause I know that is somewhat hard to find, even for myself, it's hard to find that for my own therapy journey. Um, maybe for your child of color to have, um, a therapist that reflects them in culture or in race. Yeah. Um, I think that's important. That kind of goes into having, um, representation in your home, um, that looks like toys and literature and books and movies. And uh, I don't think it just necessarily has to be um, specific to the proximity of the race of your child, but I think to really have it be clear in your home that we do just embrace all cultures and people. And we do, we're just eager students of other people and their stories and their livelihoods. And we can learn from them and they can learn from us. And um, it's something that we celebrate and, so I think it's really important um, for kids to to grow up with these type of racial mirrors um, in their home and to have it, like you said, circulating. And obviously that changes is like ages shift and seasons shift in life. Um, but I, I think it's really imperative. And it's something that I said too, um, it could be to my white adoptive mom friends or just my white mom friends, especially if you're friends with... Um, people in the black and brown community. I think sometimes my friends have admitted that they forget like when my boys come over that they don't have a toy that looks like them. And these are things I notice. And so I think it's just that idea of if just not even, I think it's just important to have representation overall. And when uh, different kids of all colors come over to play, hopefully that's a resource for people. Then they see themselves in the toys and the options in your home and in the stories in your home. And then lastly, um, I think what's really important is actually having relationships with black and brown people mm-hmm. and being intentional about that. And I think if you're doing transracial adoption, you need to ask yourself a real hard question of, can I really not only give uh, my brown or black adoptee child racial mirrors? Cause to me that almost feels like the bare minimum. Yeah. Um, you need to really ask yourself, do we have an opportunity to be intentional black and brown people in our immediate community to be building and deepening friendships with them so that we can learn so that we can have them at our table. And so that our children see that this is of high priority to us um, because we find that there's a richness and uh, such a gift in having cross-cultural relationships in, in our lives. And so that I, I it's, to me, it's life and death. And I, like I said, I know that sounds dramatic, but it is the importance it's yeah. the importance. And yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Thank you for that advice. I think, yeah, like it's, 
I, I see like the importance of having those like friendships with other people of color, but also to have those mentors in their life so that mm-hmm. they're the parents' friends and they're able to be those adult mentors for the children, yes. I think would be really That's cool. great. That's really good. Yeah. I would hope that, you know, at the dinner table, the image of like it's families meeting together. So it is involving, you know, parents of other color. Mm-hmm. And, and I think too, as a white adoptive parent, not being threatened by the fact that your transracial adoptee child will want some more proximity connection relationship with them. Um, I think that's incredibly normal and needed and expected to be honest, um, that a child's going to want to have some sense of deeper connection with someone that looks like them and that can represent them as an older adult and Mm -hmm. um, give them cultural insight. You know, I think that someone coming from a closed adoption and not really knowing my racial heritage until recently, it's that felt like such a loss because I didn't know, you know, where to look or who to go to. And um, so I think if you're in a space, um, whether that's an open adoption, you just have more information on your child's race and ethnicities to really seek out those people as well. And like you said, mentorship is huge. And to just to not take that as a threat to your parenting um, or your role in the life of um, your adopted child. Yeah. If there's insecurity there from an adoptive parent about your child having racial, cultural influences in their life, I think it's, if you are seeing that in your life, I think it's it's really time to examine who who this adoption was for and who yeah. you, whose well-being do you most value? Is it yours and your security as a parent or is it the life and future of your child? Yeah. Adoptee. And we have to, we have to be able to take a back seat and put those insecurities to bed because that is not the most important thing for us to feel like the center of our child's world. Yes. The most important thing is that child feels heard and seen and valued and understood. Yeah. And I think too, it's, I wonder, there's two questions I have. If you have an insecurity about your child wanting more proximity or more relationship with people that represent them, is it because you hold a bias or is it because you're insecure about this relationship that's in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, and why are you insecure about these things? Is it just because you don't know enough? Then you then maybe ask more questions, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I also think too, parents overall, our job is to, you know, guide and give tools and train our kids to leave. That's, mm-hmm. that's parenthood. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like with a lot of white adoptive parents or adoptive parents in general, there is this, this seated fear of they just want to protect their child from everything. And um, I feel like that's just a disservice. You know, your child needs to learn. This might sound crazy, but your child needs some hardships. They need, they need to have moments where they know their worth and they're able to stand in the gap where someone questions it. Mm-hmm. That's our job, you know? And I, yeah, I, I, I hope that parents and adoptive parents alike really do remind ourselves that, um, it is such a privilege to, to gift our kids these tools and ways to navigate the world outside. Um, and, you know, hope and pray that what we're giving is the best and, um, and being humble along that process. But it's, I think it's really important that we're, we trust our 
our own children with their own stories um, and letting them rise within those stories as they grow. And so, yeah, I, I feel like that shifts the perspective off of us yes. and onto them. So, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, and that flows into the last question I have for you, which is how can hopeful adoptive parents evaluate their intentions before adoption? I think a lot of it is uh, asking questions and sifting through a lot of emotions, information, options, decisions, um, honoring, you know, honoring your decision to, to step into something like this and, and growing your family in this way. And by honoring it, I think is, um, like I said, really taking the time to evaluate and reassess as you go on um, into this process and the deeper you get into this process. And um, I also think too, it's important to surround yourself with people that will also remind you to gently check yourself mm -hmm. and your motives too, or to have, that's something I, you know, my mom, my adopted mom and I talked about is like, we do kind of wish she had more of like a support system. She was a single parent, um, just a support system growing up. And that's a takeaway we would have or give to hopeful adoptive parents is that you actually start solidifying your community now before you invite a child in. Um, Cause that not only brings consistency to that child with friends, you know, as best as you can. I know change happens and moves happen and seasons, you know, come and go, but all that to say, I think to just inviting your community into uh, your process mm -hmm. is important. And that I think that allows just different, even people outside, just perspectives and questions that like maybe you would have never thought um, about. And just this idea of um, intent versus impact. And, you know, kind of the phrases of like, well, I intended it to be like this, you know, and, um, but the impact is actually the harm that was caused you know, and so I really think um, giving yourself space to evaluate what are my intentions and what, what potentially could be the impact of those intentions, what have been the impact, you know, what has been the impact of those intentions or uh, of my intentions. Um, and I think with having those kind of conversations, you really, like I said, you really got to give yourself some grace and, um, but also to be brave in, in those moments and in those spaces too, to just be honest with yourself. It's all, I feel like it's, it's a lot of stripping of yourself and, and, you know, kind of what you, you thought mm -hmm. and the biases that you've held onto and, um, the, I think the really hard realities of adoption, um, that kind of sit in your gut and you're like, Oh, you know, cause like it, adoption is not easy and, um, adoption is trauma. So yeah. it, it's very heavy, mm -hmm. you know, as it should be. Right. Yeah. It's complex and yeah. It, it should, it certainly should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing with us. I really hope that this was a launch pad for adoptive parents, hopeful adoptive parents to have some, to sit in these issues and yeah. research and study and talk with, with others. So that is my goal. And I think this, yeah, you just so graciously and wonderfully shared with us. So I thank you so much for being here. Yes. Thank you for having me. And where can people find you? Yeah. I feel like most of my work is on Instagram and you can find me at Chardet Renee on that platform. Okay. Perfect.
I'm so grateful to Sade for sharing her time and insight with adoptive parents. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to join us in thanking Sade, you can give financially through her Venmo, which is at Sade, S-H-A-R-D-A-Y dash D-U-F-R-E-S-N-E. We only have one episode left in season three, so check that out next week and stay tuned for exciting season four announcements. Have a great week, everybody. Yeah.